You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is Lindsay Pratt, and I've been at Free City since um, this past August, so about five months. And I'm in the Spurly Bebout City Group, and I serve with kids and tear down. So um, we're reading this morning from John 6. 1 through 40, and that's on page 837 under the Bible, or in the Bibles under your seat, or a seat near you. (laughs) All right. So, yeah. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Hold on one second. Sorry, guys, hang with me. <laughs> it's stuck. <laughs> okay, here we go. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, uh, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the, day, on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, thank you um, just for being our God and for... Um, calling us to be your people and just even the chance to gather here this morning and worship you. I pray that you would just turn our hearts to, um, yeah, to gaze upon your glory and as we do that, that we'd be transformed by that and that you would just move our hearts to worship as we hear your word preached this morning. Um, yeah, help us to see how glorious and how worthy you are. Uh, and I just pray for, also for Central, um, Lord, thank you for this school and the relationship you've given us with the school, and I just pray that uh, the people here would, um, yeah, that they would know your peace in a real way, that they would come to know the bread of life that they are hungering for, um, and yeah, just that that you would uh, be at work in the Walsley School with the, the teachers and the administrators and students and everyone, and um, that you'd also show us, Lord, if there's ways that we can do that, that you would help us be your hands and feet. And um, so, yeah, Lord, just thank you and ask um, for your grace in that. And, yeah, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, there's a few things that you need to know for sure. Um, one, I will never, ever, 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 ever email you and ask you for money or gift cards. Um, or anything like that. I, I don't know if you know, saw on Realm, I, I, my email's been hacked again. And it's not actually my email. It's just, I mean, apparently our online presence is enormous, that we're, uh, you know, pulling a lot of view from Russian hackers. Um, and, uh, and so they, they keep coming. I also will never put pastor in my email title. Um, so you, you need to know that. And I will never ever use the adverbial form of kind. I have never said kindly in my life. Um, and, and actually, you can count uh, my, uh, the picture that accompanies my um, uh, online ID. My oldest daughter uh, keeps changing that. It's, she usually changes it to Woody with his arms going like this. It's a huge fight in my house right now. Um, but I, I don't even know what this means. Like after, the, the, this is the third time, happened several years ago, then it happened right before Christmas and it just happened again. And I talked to an IT guy for advice. Hey, what do I need to do? And I'd already changed uh, passwords on my Gmail account. And, and it, he's like, they probably didn't hack that. I was like, what do I do? And he basically said, just take it. And I was like, are you serious? That's not what you do with bullies? And he's like, hey man, you fight back. Uh, so... But this, this is the, right before Christmas, I got this text uh, from one of our people. It was Heather. And she said, how funny is it that when I saw the subject line and it said, blessings to you today, Heather, 
I instantly knew there was no way that was my pastor. I don't, I don't admit, I don't know what that means. Um, so I'm, gosh, guys, I'm sorry. Um, but really, like, we would never ask uh, for finances or anything like that. And there's never a meeting I'm going in that you couldn't call me because my phone is always on silent. Um, I hope, I actually pray that that dies down. Um, but uh, if we were going to ask for money, we would just ask for cash in an envelope behind a dark alley. Um, so anyways, obviously our IT game is great. Man, we come to, to John chapter 6 and uh, just kind of a reminder, you know, we've got a, a little bit over a month where we are looking, using a Gentle and Lowly, um, a book that we're giving out for free. If you don't have one, we, we really want you to take one. It's a really simple read where it's just describing, using the scriptures and some Puritan authors to really pull together, man, what is the heart of God like? What, what can we expect? What can sinners expect when they come to their Savior? And what I'm finding is just as I've read it, is that like, man, I know a lot of the right answers, but I feel and know that in a different way when I come to confess similar sins or the same sins that I constantly walk into. Like my disposition of what I think God is like is like, oh, Casey again. And he's a pastor, you know? But what does the scriptures, what does Jesus himself, how does he describe his heart toward his children, sinners saved by grace? How does he describe it? And so we've been walking through uh, different areas, mostly New Testament, but also some Old Testament, where it just stops and we hear these descriptions of what God is like for us. And in John chapter 6, we come to like the most controversial passage of the scripture. Because it mixes three things. It mixes first Jesus. Like, I mean, you can talk about God all day long. You can talk about praying for people. And like the most secular area you step in, as long as you add in good thoughts to your prayers. Like, I'm just going to pray, you know, good thoughts. You can talk about God and working in life all you want. But man, the minute that you bring in Jesus, I'm going to pray to Jesus. I'm going to ask Jesus to intercede. I'm going to ask Jesus to do this. The minute you do that, things change. So he brings up himself, and he brings up gluten. I mean, look at the passage. He talks about bread over and over. And if you look at it, he actually also brings up politics in verse 15 where he says, they were coming to, to make me king by force. And so right here we have Jesus, politics, and gluten. Like the recipe that's guaranteed to ruin any family environment that you could enter into. The, maybe one of the most important journalistic articles ever written was written about 2014 five signs that your gluten allergy is fake by brian donovan now i i was actually sitting in tea loft when i i was reading this and uh i mean they, they don't like gluten i mean i literally like i brought it up and i'm smirking i kind of bring my screen down a little bit because i'm scared people will see it but listen five reasons why your gluten allergy is fake first he says you talk about your gluten allergy at parties 
he goes on to say, like, you would never say, man, I just found out that I'm allergic to ragweed because that allergy isn't cool. And so he's like, listen, you don't bring that up just at social gatherings. He says, number two, why your gluten allergy is fake. You drink beer. He goes on to say, beer is in essence gluten juice. If you could milk the proverbial gluten, you would get beer. Number three, he says, you have used the phrase, I'm trying to watch my gluten. Now, he, he has the celiac, and so he goes on. He's like, that would be like me saying, I'm trying to cut back on rat poison. And he goes on to say, if I would lick a crouton, all my insides would want to be on my outside. Number four, you watch the view. He goes on to say, I dare anyone to watch more than 10 hours of The View and then not wonder if gluten is secretly trying to destroy their lives. And then finally, number five, he says, you have said or say, I don't know why, I just feel better without gluten. And so when we talk about, and hey, for communion, we even offer a gluten-free option because we love you wherever you fall on that spectrum. But Jesus, he actually says something really controversial. He's going to say in these passages, all of your hungers that have failed you in the past, everything that you have sought to fulfill for yourself, there is nothing in this world that will satisfy the aching, longing hunger in your life. And the things that you feast upon on one night, you always wake up hungry again. Jesus says that he is the bread that has come down from heaven and only he can satisfy your hunger. And, and so look, like really, like bread is what connects all of this passage. Like the idea of bread, look down your scripture, starts in verse four when it talks about the Passover. And so it, it said they were up on the mountain and they were preparing because the Passover was coming. And in the Passover, there's really three elements, two that we, we view in, in communion because it changed. Jesus applied it to himself. But there's the bread to remind the people of a bitter slavery, a bitter affliction that God rescued them from only God could have done it. And then there's wine to remind them of the sacrificial blood of the lamb. And so it starts with the Passover, it talks about bread, but then it moves to the big crowd that's following after Jesus. And in verses five through seven, he sees that they're hungry and he looks at Philip and says, should we buy them bread? You know, Andrew jumps in, kind of sarcastically says, hey, I found a kid. He's got five loaves of barley bread and two fish. We could just religiously commandeer that and feed everyone. And Jesus says, okay. Bread. But then it goes on in verses 10, and we see that Jesus takes the five loaves of bread and he feeds everyone. Everyone has their fill. No one was left hungry. It, it, literally, it went from Jesus to the disciples and then from their hands to others. Like they only held it for a moment and they didn't eat it. And yet at the end, there were 12 baskets left over. There was more than enough for everyone. There was enough bread. 
And then in verse 16, Jesus sends the disciples across the lake to escape the people. He says, I'll catch up later. He walks on water, scares their pants off. And then in the morning, the people start looking around for Jesus. They can't find him and they see missing boats and they you know, hop on other boats and run around the lake to meet up with him on the other side. And when they meet him in verse 22, Jesus exposes their motives. He tells them, you're only seeking me because you're hungry for more bread. They ate all they could the night before and they woke up hungry again. Jesus said, you're only seeking me to fill yourself with something else. And then in verses 27 through 40, he leads a discussion about hunger, true hunger and salvation. And he says something incredibly profound about our hunger. He says that all our hungers are pointing us to him, the bread of life who has come from heaven to save us that he alone can satisfy your hunger. And so I, I, I just have two points. And the first one is, are you hungry? And I'm actually gonna say it in an affirmative. I'm gonna say you are hungry. And then the second point is what I've already told you, that only Jesus can satisfy your hunger. He's gonna go out of his way to say nothing in this world, nothing of your endeavors, the things that you are seeking right now, they won't satisfy for long. You will wake up like the crowd hungry again. But we have to be honest. Am I hungry? Has anything really been able to satisfy my hunger? Like, do you find yourself a lot like the crowd following after Jesus, feasting on something and then waking up hungry again and again and again? Or do you feel an unsatisfiable hunger for entertainment, escape, rest, and reprieve? But even when you get those things, there's something missing. There's an ache inside that says, that wasn't quite it. Have you ever sought for the perfect vacation only to go do the vacation and to come back exhausted and more empty than before, wondering why you even tried? But then when you showed your pictures to your friends and family, you lied about it because you invested so much. Are you hungry? And so that's the first point. You are hungry. Like bread is connecting this all the way through. We see a large crowd before Jesus himself and they had need and Jesus was more than happy to fulfill that need. And so it's this, do you find that what you think will satisfy leaves you hungry? We chase, we eat, and we come up hungry again. Look look at verse 22 with me. In verse 22, we're gonna see something described that sometimes our hungers get confused. Like we feel we're hungry for one thing, but we go to it and it doesn't satisfy. And really we were hungry for something else. And so in verse 22, this is when he really begins the discussion about our hunger and what we really need and that he's come to supply for us. And so verse 22, it says, on the next day, so after the disciples and Jesus crossed the lake of Tiberias, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone alone. Verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so when they show up, Jesus exposes, saying, there is a hunger in you, but your hunger is not even for spiritual things. Your hunger is for fleshy things, for earthly things. You're following me because you got bread and you're hungry again. We, we feel hungry and, and we mix it up all the time. Man, it's a daily occurrence. Uh, my son will say, I'm starving. And we'll respond, you're not hungry, you're bored. Or, or it, it's regular, my stomach will say, you're hungry, you're starving to death, but science will say, I'm not actually hungry, I'm dehydrated, I should drink water, and I look at it like it's wrong because I feel hungry. Or maybe my stressful day will say, you're famished, and you deserve all the chocolate chips in the freezer, all of them. But Food Psychology Magazine says many people use food as a coping mechanism to deal with such feelings as stress, boredom, and anxiety, or even prolonged feelings of joy. Why this may help in short term, eating to soothe and ease your feelings often leads to regret and guilt and can even increase the negative feelings. We confuse our hungers all the time. We, we, we find ourselves in a relationship and we start to feel some discomfort and we start to think, man, if I was in another relationship, all of my, I would be full. Or, or if they treated me like this, then I would be full, that would be enough. Or if I had this kind of success or that kind of money or that kind of persona or reputation, then I would be full, I would be enough. And every morning, just like the crowd, we wake up hungry for more. See, more money won't solve your worry problems. Pornography won't make you feel loved. A new boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, or husband won't make you feel significant. Another accomplishment won't make you feel respected. For a moment, it will satisfy, but like the crowds, you'll wake up hungry again. Our hungers deceive us. The next thing, starting in verse 27, we're going to see our hungers cannot be satisfied with this world no matter how hard we work. Like it takes divine interception to grasp. Like what it says is actually easy for us to decipher. It's easy to understand. But for us to really get it, the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus entered into this world. And then when he left, he sent the Holy Spirit of God so that we could actually grasp this truth. And so look at verse 27. So Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes. And so he says, listen, you need substances. Like there are things in this world that you actually need. There are things that if you're deprived from, like it will hurt you. I'm not just talking physical. I'm also talking emotionally and relationally. He's not saying those things aren't real. He's saying those things, as good as they are, will perish. They will perish. 
You know, he says, don't work for food that perishes. It will last for a moment, but one morning you will wake up hungry again. Our, our next sermon series, uh, we, we're working on it. We want to do Ecclesiastes, and we're going to call it Ecclesiastes. But we have a subtitle that says, when all I want isn't enough. And it's really dealing with all these things that we hunger for, that we think will satisfy, that we're working hard in school or at work or in a relationship to try to get. And we look at Solomon, who calls himself the teacher or the preacher, depending on your translation. I think teacher is better because it's a little bit more philosophical, where he poses all the hard questions. And he says, everything you're running after, it's your hunger deceiving you. And I raise after it and I ran after harder than anyone and I had the means to run after it and I came up empty every morning. And so just in another place in scripture it says the same thing. Verse 27 it goes on after it says don't work for things that'll perish. It says <clears throat> but work for the food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give to you for on him, God the Father has sent his seal. And so he says, don't work for a satisfaction that don't last. Get a satisfaction. Get something that will fill you. But don't work for it because you can't earn it. I will give it to you. He says, there is a food that endures forever, but you can't earn it. It has to be given to you. The hunger that you feel cannot be accomplished by your doing. It can only be given to you by someone who has done. And then it goes on. Look at their response. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? Like, like look back at what just happened. He says, don't work for food that perishes. And then he says, there is something that endures forever, but you can't work for it. It has to be given to you. And their first question isn't like, okay, I'll take that. Their first question is, how do we work for it? There is something deep and hardwired in us that has a works-based righteousness that we are just convinced we are just convinced that the gospel can't be true. We are convinced that we have to do something to earn it. Day in and day out, there is something nagging inside of us that says it can't be that way. And so even after Jesus says, I'll give it to you, they say, how can we work for it? And then it goes on. And actually, I had this great conversation. Um, I had this great conversation where a couple weeks ago, uh, one of the phrases that we used uh, in the sermon was, we can't work for the heart of God. We need to work from the heart of God. Meaning we need to establish this truth that God is for you, that God has loved you, that God has done everything to justify you, to put you in a right relationship with him. And from that knowledge, from that place, as a son or daughter of God, whom he's never gonna turn away, he's never gonna walk away, from that place, we can actually enter into this world and work with him. And all along the way, we'll find things that we need to repent from, that we need to say sorry, that we were thinking wrongly about, the things that we hunger for, that we lean too much into. We have to say, gosh, it didn't satisfy again. I'm sorry, I forgot, God. That is working from the heart of God. Working for the heart of God is, man, I've got to do this right or God won't love me or God will smite me or God will try to get me. I can't be sure. Verse 29. 
Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. And so what, what he did was he took their language and they said, hey, how, how do we work for this? And he said, let me tell you, this is the work of God. This is what you can do. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And it says, if you see an unsatisfiable hunger in your life, like don't miss this moment. There is a divine intervention for your soul. It's an invitation to believe that Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy your hunger. And it talks about it like this. Believe. It talks about it like this, that you look and you settle yourself. And, you know, sometimes belief feels really rapturous, like, man, I have no doubt. I'm absolutely certain about this. Sometimes there's a labor. He says the work of God. Sometimes there's a labor to believe where you have to lean in and you have to tell yourself over and over, this won't satisfy. I'll wake up hungry again. If I make this move or I have this job or if I get this promotion, it won't satisfy. Only Jesus will satisfy. Lean in to Jesus and you have to tell yourself over, you have to preach to your heart over and over. There's a part of belief that it takes captive other things in our life when we tell ourselves what's true over and over and over. The hunger that you feel will not be satisfied with anything that you can acquire in this world. No success, no relationship, no status. It won't do it. You'll wake up hungry again. The third thing about our hunger, and this takes kind of a spiritual turn, because our hungers, they, 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 they're, they're physical, there's also emotional, they're also spiritual, where there's sometimes we're deceived in our spirituality. Like, and so we see it right here, and it says this, our hunger, we're in danger of our hunger demanding more and more evidence so that we might stay autonomous. Look at verse 30. It says this, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, this is really ironic because if you look back at verse 1 and 2, it plainly says they saw his signs, so they were following him. Like, if you back up to chapter 5, you see that Jesus just healed a paralyzed guy. And then chapter 4, Jesus healed an official son who was on the brink of death. So they witnessed these things, and they said, man, these signs are incredible. Let's follow after this guy. Let's learn from him. So they saw, and they followed, but now he's making a claim that says, there's nothing in this world that will satisfy. Only I will satisfy. And like, hey, I'm going to need to see another sign. And then they bring up manna from heaven, which the irony of this is they just experienced that. There was just a huge crowd. You know, Jesus' disciples like pushed a kid down, stole his lunch, and Jesus multiplied it and fed everyone. They just experienced this. Like, we're going to have to see that again. There's a danger in us that we start to say, yeah, yeah, I'll believe if you give me this or if you do that. And oftentimes what I see is that thing happens and then it's like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, but I'll believe if then you do this again or, or you do that. Like there's an insatiable hunger inside that that bar will keep being raised and keep being raised. There's something in us that drives us for more and for more. And sometimes that works like this. I have to have this certain religious experience. 
Like we, we've never experienced this here because we're, we're a young church, but some churches have these like worship wars where they're like, no, we want this kind of music. And you know, the other side is like, what, the electric guitar's not cool enough for you? And I mean, they go back and forth. And like, I think at the heart of it, it's just this. God did something incredible through a style of worship somewhere in your life and you experienced him in an incredible way and there's a hunger for more of that and that's not wrong. But God doesn't need the song. God doesn't need the piano. He doesn't need the guitar. The spirit of God is able to enter in and satisfy. But what we do is say, I have to have this. It has to be this way. And so sometimes our hungers Say, man, just more and more. Sometimes they're spiritual lies. Verse 32. And then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says that he is the bread of God who has come from heaven to give life to the world. And if you notice in verse 33 where he says gives life to the world, in Greek there's three different words for life. And so like there's one word, it's bios. It's where we get the, 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 the word biology. It's living organic life. It's everything that we see. You know, when we go out into the world and we look at this and we see it move, it's the creative biology that God has created. He created all of it and it is magnificent. But then he could use this word, it's suki, and it's where we get the word psychology, it's inner life. It's where we can look at someone, and on the shallow level, we might say this, like, yeah, man, they're alive, but they're not living. Like something inside of them is dead. Or it's where we could look at someone where they're being, you know, kept alive by, by maybe machines or something, but they're not there. Like we know there's something beyond animation of movement and blood cells dividing. There's something inside that gives life. But there's another word. It's the word that's used here, and the word is zoe. And zoe is used to describe this real life that only God can give. Often it's translated as eternal life. But it doesn't just mean forever life. It means a spark of life that only God can give. A change, a crossing from death to life. Something that is completely different. And he says, I can give this life. I can give the life that only God can give. See, the real living that we hunger for won't be found outside of us in success, possessions, experience, accomplishments, or relationships. The real life that we're looking for, it won't be found inside of us. It, it won't be found inside like your, your self-help. Like there might be help in that, but it won't be found in such a way. They are shadows of the truth. Like it won't be found inside of yourself just to get it right. This is saying that the life that you hunger for can only come from God and Jesus came into the world to bring it to you. He is the life and light of the world. And listen, I love what they do. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And so, I mean, I love it. Like, hey, I can give you full, abundant life. They can only come from God. And like, yeah, I'll take two slices of that. I would love that. It goes on. But what connects this entire passage is bread and our nagging, persistent, never satisfied hunger. Are you hungry? 
Do you see an insanity inside of you that keeps pursuing the next thing only to come up hungry again? Do you see the self-destruction that's driving your life of I've got to have them, they've got to look at me a certain way, and even when it happens, you're hungry again? Jesus says, you're hungry. And then point two, Jesus says that he is what all your hungers have always pointed to. The crowd said, we want this bread and we want to always be satisfied. Keep it, give it to us, please. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you, that is audacious. Like that is, that is crazy. He says, I am the relationship that will never let you down. I am the relationship that will always satisfy. And I know right now, because it's in my heart too, like there's a thing of like, no man, I have found dissatisfaction and I have been wanting and I have looked at the promises of God and I have been hurt and I have been sad. And he's saying, that is not on my account. If you could see everything that I could see, you would actually agree with every decision that I've ever made. I will never dissatisfy. I will never leave you wanting. Drink in deep, feast upon me. And yet what we do is we take a side of God with us, but then we feast all day on social media. And we come up depressed. We come up feeling lonely. And then we say, God, you failed me. And yet if we look at it, which your app told you this morning how many hours a day you spent on your phone. It told you, unless you turned it off because you couldn't deal with the shame of it. It told you. We're feasting on something else and we're coming up hungry. And then we're blaming God because he's not feeling. What if, I'm, I'm gonna do something crazy. Here in February, we're unleashing it's gonna hit the market. Our, our online presence, I'll be hacked again. We're giving, we put together just a, a life transformation field guide. And on one half of it, it's just this. It's just spiritual disciplines like silence and solitude, contemplative Bible reading, contemplative prayer, um, and then practicing gratitude. They are, they are spiritual disciplines that have been around for thousands of years. And then the other side, what do you do in your life transformation group? You know, your accountability group, you know, one-on-one, you know, me with two other guys. What do you do and how you kind of talk through these things? And one of the, the things that we're saying is if you find yourself constantly anxious, constantly like, like there's a brokenness that you can't fill, even though you are in Christ, he's never gonna turn you. If you find yourself there, but yet you see like every Sunday morning that you are spending a shameful amount of time on your phone, we're gonna ask you to fast from that that and invest in this. Try being silent before the Lord, reading the scriptures, pulling out one promise, and then setting a timer and just being still for 10 minutes and think about, God, how does this promise intersect my life? That is feasting upon the Lord. Whatever you find, taking that to God in prayer, like contemplative Bible reading is not just reading the Bible for information. It's an expectation that the Holy Spirit of God is in your life and God is with you to direct you and guide you. And it is looking at the scriptures. How are they encouraging me? How are they convicting me? 
If this is a loving father, when he brings conviction, he's not doing it to stomp on you. He's doing it to build you up, to change you. You know what the scripture would say, from one moment of glory to the other. Like, like there's, there's sometimes we feast on all these other things and we kind of have a side of God maybe on Sunday. And then we're like, God, you failed me. Remember, he says, this is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe. And it's a continual believing of coming back what is really true and preaching it. What is true about me? What is true about what I do and how God sees me? What is true about my relationships and what he said? What is really true about me and what is really true about God? And so we have to be honest. Like when I come up, I'm like, oh man, I've been let down and hurt. Is that really a doing of God? I mean, there's been so many things where I'm like, man, man, this has been tough. And God's like, I told you it would be tough. I didn't promise you something different. And so it says right there, Jesus makes this incredible claim. He says that he is the comfort that you have wanted in every slice of chocolate cake. He says that he is the fulfillment that you have wanted in every ambitious endeavor. He says he is the security that you have sought in every lover's embrace. It says he is the connection that you have desired with every click on a web browser. He says, I will never leave you hungry and I will never leave you thirsty. Jesus says the divine life has come into the world from heaven and it is in him and it will satisfy the nagging persistent hunger that we feel when we actually are still and quiet. And then it goes on and we get this incredibly clear picture of the gospel and then a promise of the gospel. Look at verse 36. It says, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Like let that rest in just a little bit. Like a possibility of the gospel being presented in front of you, the truth of what God has done, that Jesus entered into the world, he came from God, he was God himself, and he lived a life that we couldn't accomplish for us as a substitute, and he died a death that we absolutely deserve, and he was banished from God's presence, whatever that means, however that works, he did it as a substitute on our behalf, but because he didn't have sin, he rose again, now he offers us a relationship with God that we can walk with him, that we can be transformed from one glory to another for all of eternity as sons and daughters of God because of his work. That is the gospel. But verse 36 says, you can see that and just walk away. Goes on, verse 37. All that the Father uh, gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Uh, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. First, the truth of the gospel. If you look at Jesus and believe he is the son of God who came down and you trust that what he did on the cross is enough, this says you are a child of God. You are a Christian. Verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes on him should have eternal life. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus has come from heaven to satisfy. And he's satisfied on both ends. Because of our sin, he satisfied the Father. He paid the debt, but he came to satisfy the brokenness that we find inside of us. Second, the promise of the gospel. He will never turn you away. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will never close the door. He will never say you're too messy. He will never look at you and say you've messed up one too many times. He will never cast you out. And I know like there are thoughts in hearts. I mean, thoughts in my heart where it's like, but you don't know what I've done. Verse 37, Jesus will never cast you out. But you don't know how many times I've done it. Verse 37, Jesus will never cast you out. But you don't know the hunger inside of me and what it's caused me to do. Verse 37, Jesus says, I will never cast you out. Listen to this. This is from Gentle and Lowly in response to this verse. It'll be up on the screen. Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. But he says those who come to him are never cast out. The only thing required to enjoy such love is to come to him, to ask him to take us in, he does not say whoever comes to me with sufficient contrition or he does not say whoever comes to me feeling bad enough for their sin or he does not say whoever comes to me with redoubled effort. He says whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you hungry? Will you bring that hunger to Jesus? You know, every week we, uh, we have moments time when we move to communion. And I want you to think about that just for a second. Like we move to communion and we bring nothing with us. The only thing that we bring every week is a hunger inside of us, a hunger that might pull in a thousand different ways. But as a believer, there's also a hunger that says this, Jesus, I hope you can satisfy. I hope that you're enough. And ultimately, this meal and this table, it points to a different meal and a different table where there is food forevermore and there is feasting forevermore. And there is with the bridegroom, with the Lamb of God, everything paid, everything addressed, that there will be always satisfaction from the glory of God. There's no more need for a son. I mean, did you read Revelations in the Bible ending it? There's no more need for a sun or a moon because the light of Jesus will shine upon and light everything else. It will illuminate every dark place in your life. Every doubt that you had will be satisfied. These are the promises of God. 
And in this life, we come every week with other hungers and we're saying, Lord, I am redirecting my life in this moment the best I can, like a physical movement. I'm redirecting my life to say, only you satisfy. And so what we find ourselves in communion is we find bread which represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you. He had a real body. He entered in to redeem you. And then we, we come and we find wine or grape juice. And, and the wine represents the spilt blood of Jesus. He died. He paid the penalty. And we come every week remembering that one day he'll fully come back because he didn't just die, he rose again. And he's promised to come back and he's promised to wipe away every tear. He's promised that he can satisfy whatever hunger you bring. And so a couple different movements. I'm gonna pray for us and then you can, when you're ready, you can move to the table and you'll start on the bread side. It'll be torn off for you. And then it'll be dipped and handed to you and a proclamation will be spoken just to remind you that the body and blood of Jesus was spent for you. We also offer communion in the back and that is both gluten-free and it's individually wrapped. And make a movement back there and remember that the body and, and blood of Jesus was spent for you. We, we also have a movement that we would encourage you that if you find yourselves and there's just a hunger that's really nagging, you just want prayer, we'll have people ready to receive you in the back and they'll just pray for you. You tell them as much or as little as you can and just let them pray. There's also a movement that keeps you still. Like if in this moment, like you've realized, man, I, in my search to fulfill a hunger, I have sinned against someone and it is heavy upon me. God might be asking you to forego communion until you've gone and repented and asked for forgiveness. Or the movement might be this, I don't, I don't know about Jesus yet. You know, we, we offer prayers on the screens that just kind of walk you through what it means to be a Christian. You've heard it. I want you to contemplate this one thing. Are you hungry? The things that you think will satisfy, have they satisfied? What if nothing in this world, like what this says, is able to satisfy that God had to bring something from heaven to change something in you because the endless need for satisfaction will put you on a treadmill that would never get to the destination? Then we pray for us. Um, God, Lord, I, uh, you're so good. And Lord, I'm so sorry that, man, I take a side of you uh, during the week and I feast on other things and I come up hungry and then I turn around and I blame you for it. It is, it is not reasonable. Lord, I pray that you give us clarity. Like all across the room, you would give us clarity about the thing that we think will satisfy. And I am certain there's something in that. It's not evil. But Lord, that we would bring that to you in an act of obedience. We would just bring it with us and we would come to the bread and to the wine, and we would remember that only Jesus can satisfy. Father, Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would do healing, like inside the hearts and souls of your people, of your children, you would start to incline them toward a healing. Lord, those who are lonely, Lord, you would bring community. Lord, those who are weary, you would bring encouragement. Lord, those who have been wounded, you would heal. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Come when you're ready.